North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. The probability of further escalation is actually quite likely. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. This week, the South Korean government announced that they don't intend to renew the General Security of Military Information Agreement, another indication that the South Korean-Japanese dispute is escalating. Joining me now are CSIS's Dr. Victor Cha and Dr. Katrin Katz, who's joining us by phone, to discuss how the conflict has escalated and what might be next for the two countries. We're here on The Impossible State with Dr. Cha and Dr. Katz, and we've got a lot to talk about between Korea and Japan. Victor, what's going on? So I guess the most pressing piece of news is that the South Koreans announced that they are no longer going to renew a military information sharing agreement that they had with Japan and the United States. This agreement was due to expire this weekend. And I think the Koreans surprised everybody by their decision, their announcement that they did not intend to renew, because I think everybody thought as bad as things were between Japan and Korea, all the signals up until this week were that they would let the renewal sort of quietly roll over. But clearly they've stirred up a hornet's nest by deciding not to do this. Dr. Katz, you're joining us by phone. What's your viewpoint on this? I fully agree with Victor that it was a surprise. I always try to factor in wishful thinking, you know, not being on the ground there. I've heard from a good friend on the ground there that some weren't so surprised by this. You know, the closer you are, I guess, to certain individuals within the Blue House, you kind of get a different sense of the the take on the value of agree- an agreement like GSOMIA, the General Security of Military Information Agreement, which is what they didn't just extend. But from my perspective, I, I guess I was I was hoping and also from what I was tracking on my end that they would at least extend. Uh, they always had the option to not share on a case by case basis, but instead they decided to uh, take the unfortunate step of just crumbling the actual framework that took many years to build up with the assistance of the United States, of course. This is a big deal. I mean, this is two of our strong allies that we have major cooperation with and critical that they have cooperation with each other, just turning a key agreement away. What, you yeah. know, this is a big yeah. deal. Yeah. I mean, I think Katrin makes an important point, which is that if there was really an issue with regard to questions about information sharing or technicalities related to information sharing, the agreement itself had a built-in ability to say you didn't have to share everything. Like There are things that you could not share. But this was sort of a blanket, like, we don't want to do this anymore. We want to sever our intel sharing cooperation with a country, Japan, with which we have a common ally and with which we share actually very similar security concerns. Yeah. So in that sense, it was both, I think, a political and a strategic statement by the South Koreans about how they view threats to South Korea and Japan or perhaps asymmetry of threats for South Korea and Japan, and how they view the future of their bilateral cooperation. Well, what do you think they're trying to accomplish with this? I think in terms of the relationship, this is essentially revenge. I mean, this is an escalation of this bilateral dispute, and they're unhappy with an action that Japan took earlier to remove South Korea from the whitelist of exports of sensitive materials. 
And so this is their response to that. So in that sense, there's a lot of revenge associated with it. This all started because of a trade dispute, right? Victor mentioned the white agreement. So White list, yeah. White list, the yeah. white list. It, how did this all start? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's important to go back a ways. I mean, you could potentially go back hundreds of years here, but we won't do that in this, <laughs> right, in yeah. this podcast. But this relationship, this I is mean, a four-hour podcast, by the pre- way. Predates, <laughs> it predates the United States' existence. Right. It predates the colonization era, which um, turned up the historical issues, which we habitually see the cause of disputes. Japan's colonization from 1910 to 1945, there's a lot of remaining issues. Anybody who's watched this relationship is well aware of the history history issues and the back and forth on those things. Um, But normally what tends to happen is that the security and economic dimensions of the relationship are compartmentalized, I think, strategically and pragmatically and very intentionally by all the players. And so what we're used to seeing is, you know, historical issues, you know, kind of um, tied up with domestic political stoking, you know, politicians stoking uh, these historical issues for their own domestic gains. But then the players uh, within Korea and Japan, they've gotten pretty good at fighting and also making up. So kind of unraveling the tensions, again, with the economic and security issues separate. I think a good starting point for, for this particular dispute is probably last fall, because that's when this kind of new, what's been dubbed kind of unprecedented era has started in terms of tying in economic and security issues into this tangle. So the starting point for that was these two landmark South Korean Supreme Court rulings that demanded that Japanese companies compensate South Korean forced labor victims from from World War II. That was the first time that the South Korean Supreme Court came down with with that kind of decision. And, uh, you know, in Japan's terms, that was unacceptable because um, it sees the 1965 normalization agreement that um, forms the framework of kind of later economic cooperation and the framework of the relationship. Japan views 1965 and the text of 1965 as um, basically taking care of individual claims as well as state to state claims for wartime behavior. And so that's where a tangle started with an economic issue because you suddenly have Japanese companies being asked to pay individuals within South Korea with the potential to balloon very quickly. The initial case on Nippon Steel in October was four forced labor victims and then Mitsubishi uh, Heavy Industries the following month with another 11, I believe. But there's potential for, uh, gosh, there's like around 200,000 forced labor victims that have, have kind of come forward since over the past decade or so. And potentially up to 300 uh, Japanese companies. There's variation in the numbers that you see out there, but those are ones that I see most often. So it could balloon very quickly. Japan, I think, is understandably cautious about protecting its companies. On the other hand, if you kind of turn to South Korean channel on this, they'll tell you all the reasons why, you know, they're in the right here. And of course, fast forwarding to this summer, we have new issues that have come into play as the forced labor issue wasn't resolved over the months. I think that's right. And then Japan made the decision to, as we talked about the whitelist, remove South Korea with regard to the export of certain precursor materials that are important for the production of South Korean semiconductors on the grounds that South Korea is lax in terms of maintaining control of those materials, possibly going to sanctioned countries, including North Korea. And so that was an action that the Japanese government took, you know, whether it was in retaliation or not for the Supreme Court rulings in South Korea, the Japanese will tell you it was not, the South Koreans will tell you it will. So I was actually in South Korea when Japan made this decision. 
and I was in government meetings in South Korea, and the South Korean government was upset. I mean, they, they were quite emotional. And now we see what started out as a court issue with regard to history then became a trade issue and now is becoming a security issue because of this latest decision to sever the intelligence sharing agreement. So do we think that this could continue to escalate? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I was thinking about this just yesterday. It's like one way of looking at it is, have we hit rock bottom or can we get any lower? And right. and I don't know how mm-hmm. Katrin feels about this, but the the only place lower I think we could go is if the South Koreans decide that they want to no longer consider the 1965 treaty valid anymore, the 1965 normalization Mm -hmm. treaty. That would truly be the absolute rock bottom of rock bottom because it would essentially say the entire basis of the relationship established uh, when they normalized relations. You know, a former colony and Japan normalizing relations is now no, no longer valid, in which case the Japanese might say, okay, then that $500 million in loans and grants that we gave you in 1965, you know, which would amount to about $4 billion today, we want all that back. So it could get really ugly and petty going forward. Hopefully it won't. Also, I mean, other steps just, you know, if things stay as they are now. I mean, normally, like, it's been like time will heal all wounds with the general standard squabbles when historical issues are raise over time, you know, you think things are going to get better. But the time factor now is actually much more sensitive because as time passes, the economic damage also increases. In terms of, you know, what is South Korea's response going to be to Japan's export control moves? Japan has said, I mean, with the passage of the first two of these precursor chemicals went fairly quickly, but South Korea being off Japan's whitelist will go into effect, I think, on the 28th. So in the next few days, it's going to be over a thousand more potential goods that will get kind of tangled up in a bureaucratic process. And so with time comes more damage to the South Korean economy, even if those further shipments out, exports go go quickly. It's still going to s- slow things down and it's creating uncertainty for South Korea in its critical industries, which are also, by the way, critical to global supply chains because South Korea is the leading memory chip maker in the world, two, two very large companies that are the leaders in this. So the implications economically, I think, over time will make things worse just if things stay exactly as they are now. So that's not a very rosy picture. That's an important point. I mean, I think Catherine and I have studied this bilateral. We both wrote dissertations on the, on this topic of Japan-Korea relations. And for the most part, these disputes, they've gone back and forth, but they've been, you know, bilateral, you know, whether it was the kidnapping of South Korean opposition politicians by the KCIA from Japan or North Korean operative, you know, getting trained in Japan and trying to assassinate a South Korean president. You know, these things have always been violent. But in this case, it is it has broader implications. Like if suddenly the South Koreans, there's a slowdown in the production of memory chips, that's going to affect the global supply chain. Sure. And on the security side, if North Korea is doing more missile tests and Japan and South Korea can't share information... That's going to have implications for regional security. So this is these, not to this mention become, for the United States. The United States. Oh yeah, that's a whole other type of we we can talk about. But this is a bilateral thing that has now bled over into global supply chains and U.S. regional security. Well, I'm sure that there's a lot of politics here too for Moon and for Abe. But let's put that on hold for a second. What about the United States? What do we do, and how is this going to affect us and our relationships with both South Korea and Japan? I mean, I think Victor and I both agree we wish the U.S. were more proactive because at times in the past, the U.S. has been a very helpful actor 
really only when things get bad enough. There are also, you know, episodes where South Korea and Japan on their own, like I said, they know how to fight, but they also know how to make up. So there, there've been episodes where they've figured out how to kind of disentangle domestic politics, history issues and move on. But when, when things got, have gotten bad enough, particularly under the Obama administration, there were some really key moments in 2014 with the meeting of Park Geun-hye and Abe with Obama in mediating that. The Jisumia agreement was mediated by the United States since it initially hoped to be finalized in 2012. So the Obama administration played a really key role in shepherding it first into in a kind of trilateral sense with the U.S. in the middle, this memorandum of understanding in 2014, where the U.S. would be in the middle of intelligence sharing. And then by 2016, having the bilateral agreement, also in the highly controversial and unraveling comfort women agreement of 2015, dealing with sex slaves of Koreans during World War II under the Japanese imperial period. So the U.S. has played a really critical role in those moments, but it's also a very sensitive thing. The U.S., you know, I think rightly hesitates to be called a mediator because a lot of these issues do involve the United States, but a lot of them are very bilateral as well. And I think the countries are rightly sensitive to outside players coming and meddling and telling them what to do. Usually behind the scenes, kind of more subtle actions are important. In this case, maybe something more bold would be helpful, but there's always a, a, a fine balance. Let me ask so, you this. If the United States is taking care of the security of both of these nations, doesn't the United States have a say in the two nations, even if it's a bilateral matter, that they, especially on, on a civil military agreement, doesn't the United States have a say that maybe they better make up and make up quick? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean that's what's because the Jisumia was not because of this move by South Korea. The U.S. has an opening to be much more vocal. And I, I hope it will be. So given that this is a you know unprecedented, unique dispute that bleeds into U.S. security issues directly, the U.S. does have, you know, it's really well within its bounds to be, you know, more vocal and pressing. But that said, it's, you know, given the domestic politics of this, it's also got to be careful because it can also backfire. So, yeah, I expect to see the U.S. being more vocal here. It, it should be. I think it would help. But the behind the scenes, more subtle press and nudging is, is also important. I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, these are our two most important allies in Asia, right? They are the ones we need to cooperate with if we're going to shape China's rise, if we're going to deter North Korea. So U.S. interests are deeply embedded in what happens between Korea and Japan. And when they fight, as they have done periodically throughout history, the United States has always been sort of a steady hand trying to bring the two sides together. You know, frankly, I think we were AWOL, you know, as this whole thing was starting to blow up, going back to the Supreme Court rulings. And then we came in, but it was too little too late, right? Because Bolton went to Seoul and Tokyo and talked about trying to, what was then called, I think, the standstill agreement. Is that right, mm -hmm. Katrin? The idea that both sides yeah, would stop? Yeah, the rumored, the rumored, right, rumored standstill, the rumored standstill that both sides would stop. Esper was just there. Steve Began was actually in South Korea when the South Koreans announced that they were going to not move forward with this renewal of this agreement. So the U.S. has tried to come in, but I think they came in far too late. Just by way of comparison, as Catherine said, during the Obama administration, there were rough periods in the relationship, and they actually instituted a mechanism where they would have quarterly trilateral deputy secretary meetings. Tony Blinken, the deputy secretary of state, would do quarterly meetings with the two allies. It wasn't just about 
mending the relationship between the two sides. The three countries have a broad global agenda. We Keeping lots, the communication open. Keeping the communication open, but broad agenda, whether it was climate change or whether it was Afghanistan. Or, I mean, there are a lot of things to talk about. And, you know, that was completely missing, right, as this thing got worse and worse. Just for listeners who aren't familiar with this, to understand what the U.S. would like to see versus where we are now is – there was a period of time, uh, this was during the Obama administration, when North Korea was doing all the, of these missile tests and nuclear tests, and the U.S. aspiration was a collective defense statement among the three allies saying any threat to one of us is a threat to all of us. Right. right? That was sort of the aspiration point, and compared to where we are today, where the two sides are actively decoupling both economically and security-wise from each other. That's how bad it is now. That's really significant. Yeah, that's quite significant. It's significant not just for our allies, but it, this has implications for the space that North Korea has to maneuver. And it basically is carte blanche to China. You know, China, you can do whatever you mm -hmm. want because our alliance system is right. crumbling. So China obviously benefits from this, and they've got to be smiling looking at this. Oh, yeah, I think a flashing, yeah. like, big grin. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, couldn't have come at a better time for them while they're dealing with their own mm public relations crisis and security crisis mm -hmm. in Hong Kong. Yeah. Can I just say on, dom mm -hmm. on, on mm -hmm. domestic politics is, and I don't think it's incorrect, there's a view out there that part of the reason that the Moon government has moved so far in this direction with, with Japan is that it's a good sort of rally around the flag dynamic as they get ready for a big national election in April. You know, he's having difficulty in the polls, very divisive domestic issues. So this is one on which all Koreans can rally around. So I think there's that dynamic. And there's also some hope, I think, in Korea that after the upper house elections in Japan, if Abe won the upper house, like he needed to be tough on Korea in advance of the upper house. But if the upper house elections went well, then he would sort of come back to the table. The upper house elections mm -hmm. did go well. He did not come back to the table. And that pissed off the Koreans mm -hmm. even more. So here we are. He kept asking for movement on the, the forced labor agreement, basically, for an arbitration panel to be set up, and South Korea rejected it. So yeah. I have to ask you all, like, what's next? What can the United States do? I mean, I'm sitting here thinking the United States better get you two, Mark Lippert, <laughs> and, you know, Mike Green, and send you guys on a plane and go fix this right away. <laughs> That's kind of my thought. But what, what does the United States need to do? There are a lot of smart people. I mean, I think in that's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> they could put a bunch of people on planes over there right now. A lot of people with ideas. I just, the top levels aren't really <laughs> responding to what a lot of people in the expert community would like to see happen. But I was just going to say that I think at this point, the arguments can be made on both sides. Legitimate arguments can be made on both sides for the reasons each step was taken. But at the core, it's all political. Right. I mean, yeah. when South Korea renounced the 2015 Comfort Women Agreement, right, which was another rung in this ladder of escalation, when they renounced the 2015 Comfort Women Agreement, there is no Comfort Woman victim who has benefited from that decision right now, right? So there are, you know, reasons for all this, but this is very political, and it is now at such a high level that intervention can only come at an extremely high level. I mean, Bolton has tried, he's gotten nowhere. Pompeo has tried, he's gotten nowhere. Esper's tried, he's gotten nowhere. It can only come at one level now. And I mean, I guess to President Trump's credit, yeah, he did make some statement 
recently where he said, oh, yeah, it's really bad. It doesn't need to be this bad. Something to that effect. There needs to be more active intervention here. And behind the scenes is important, but I think because this is political, it needs to be more than behind the scenes. So the United States is more than behind the scenes on this. This creates domestic political space for both leaders. I don't know, Katra, if I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's, I, I think it's I, after I agree. Now. I just think both. What I think behind the scenes the U.S. could do, and I don't know, getting back to my earlier point of these countries also have agency. So the, the only thing I get kind of tense about when I hear U.S. is the only actor that can help here is it puts... Japan and South Korea kind of off the hook. And it also kind of negates their own history of making up after their squabbles. And so I, I totally agree, Victor. I think, like, to my earlier point, I mean, sure, expert level folks, you know, including the, some of the great folks at CSAS and elsewhere could get on a plane, but this is really a, a leadership level issue. But some of the things I think kind of behind the scenes meetings could be doing is just pointing out in the background of this relationship has always been quiet streams of cooperation. And to point to those things that have been done in the past, the helpful moments, including uh, Moon Jae-in's August 15th statement on marking uh, South Korea's liberation from Japan's colonization in 1945. And he came out and he's, you know, kind of offered an olive branch and encouraging that, encouraging more of that to look at a more hopeful, I guess, trajectory. And, and this might be completely naive because you know, we hope for pragmatism and then we see the opposite. But if the leaders were to put on pragmatic hats, like Victor said, this is this is highly political. So, I mean, the hopeful thing out of that is that politicians can undo what they've done. And so after, you know, a cooling off period with time, other things might happen, like external crises, heaven forbid, North Korea might act up even more. We might see more international pressure here, given the global supply implications or potential global supply chain implications. Those types of things, security, economic-wise, might put new pressures domestically on the leaders, might open some space for, you know, baby steps. I mean, one quid pro quo I hope for, and again, maybe highly unrealistic in the present moment, is for Moon Jae-in to agree to the uh, arbitration that is allowed and, and called for under the 1965 treaty, and for, in exchange, Japan to undo the export control moves. So, I mean, those are both well within their capacity to undo. They're not irreversible steps. Jisomiya, you know, is arguably a bit more irreversible because it's, it would take time to redo that type of agreement. But, you know, that's a maybe naive vision for how a very kind of technical quid pro quo could get them back on a track, maybe a dysfunctional track, maybe not a perfect track, but something that at least keeps the animal moving and allows us, you know, as the United States to pursue our security interests and our strategic interests in the region. But I, I agree with Victor, and there needs to be more than nudging and louder than whispers at the leadership level as well to kind of come at this from various angles, because this is an unprecedented situation. What you could have is you could have the leaders meeting trilaterally and trying to make some statement, right, you know, a right. cooling off period. And right. then that's when some of these more technical quid pro quos can start mm -hmm. to happen as, mm -hmm. as the step forward. I mean, the most discouraging thing about all of this is in the past, one of the things that the, the external forces that Catherine was talking about, one of the things that has always seemed to get them to get back together again has always been the external threat, right? There's If there's an external threat, they've always seemed to coalesce. I.e. Um, North Korea. I.e. North Korea. But this is happening you know, just as North Korea has, you know, has just fired a sixth set of short-range ballistic missiles, you know, in the period of four to five weeks, that's really depressing because yeah. it it leads you to think, aside from the emotional aspect, 
how could Korea end this intelligence sharing agreement with Japan when North Korea is firing all these missiles? And the only rational answer you can come up with is that this particular South Korean government doesn't see a threat from North Korea. Whereas, of course, Japan sees a threat from North Korea, but this South Korean government does not see a threat from North Korea. And therefore, they feel like they don't need an intelligence sharing agreement with Japan because they're decoupling Korean Peninsula security from Japan security. That's what's most discouraging to me about this because that has been the crux of trilateral cooperation throughout history. That is a big deal for us to watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you both for being here. And just to conclude, so... If I was going to put my dream team on a plane, this is the absolute dream team. So it would be the two of you. We put Lippert on there with you. We put Mike Green on there with you. And then we'd round it out with Kurt Campbell, Joe Nye, and Rich Armitage. That's the dream team, I think, right there. Yeah, well, maybe we'll all be there this fall. So you never know. <laughs> did I did I miss it? Did I leave anybody out? Uh, you bring Sue along probably too. Probably many, but I, I'd be yeah. happy to go oh, yeah. for the ride if it could help. If it could help at all. We got to get Sue on <laughs> there. Lady we'll Sue me Terry as well. Sue, so. of course, yeah. absolutely, Sue. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that we'll think more about our dream teams. But this is a fascinating <laughs> issue. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you both for being here. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.